Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. So we actually have Dr. Moser, who's actually my oncologist from Scottsdale, Arizona. He is going to be joining us virtually, so we're going to pull him up soon. And then we have Dr. McKean, who's here from Nashville. And we have Dr. S- is it Dr. Sang? Is it, is it Sanger? Dr. Sanger. Um, and they are both here from Nashville. They're going to be joining us on the stage in just a few minutes. Here we go. So let me just briefly introduce these guys to you. Uh, Dr. Moser is a medical oncologist who specializes in phase one clinical trials and drug development and cutaneous malignancies. He leads the melanoma program at Honor Health Research Institute, and he runs one of the only programs in Arizona that's dedicated to uveal melanoma. Dr. Meredith McKean, who's joining me on stage now, received her bachelor's from Iowa State University and uh, was a promise where, the, where uh, as a promising athlete, she ran cross country and track. Uh, She continued earning her education and earned a degree in a master's of public health. And during medical school, her research in heart failure and heart transplant focused on uh, building a tissue bank for for proteins predictive of patient survival. Um, Following that point, uh, she eventually studied at MD... She completed her fellowship in hematology oncology at MD Anderson, and she studied the biomarkers for immune checkpoint inhibitors in metastatic melanoma, um, which earned uh, her an American, earning her an American Society of Clinical Oncology Young Investigator Award. She now serves as the associate director for the Melanoma and Skin um, Cancer Research Program at the Sarah Cannon Research Institute of Tennessee Oncology. Um, we also have joining us uh, Dr. Singer. And Dr. Singer, if it's okay, can I have you introduce yourself just briefly? I unfortunately don't have your bio on here, and I missed it. So I just wanted to let you tell us a little about yourself. How's that? (laughs) Good, thank you. Um, Good morning. My name is Maureen Sanger. I'm a psychologist with Tennessee Oncology, so I counsel uh, cancer patients and survivors. Um, I did my uh, graduate work at Vanderbilt University, uh, went on to MD Anderson for a couple years for some additional training, and have been back in Nashville doing various things over the course of my career. Um, before joining Tennessee Oncology, I was an assistant professor of pediatrics at Vanderbilt, where I worked with the cancer and sickle cell disease program. So um, that's me in a nutshell. I'm happy to be with you this morning. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Um, we're glad to have both of you, and we're glad to go ahead and let's bring Dr. Moser up so they can get started. And as far as I'm remembering, Dr. Moser is actually going to be presenting first to talk to you guys about uveal melanoma, um, metastatic spread, and just kind of like, okay, what can we talk about here? Obviously, this is a big topic. Um, So we're just going to have technology join us. Hello, Dr. Moser. Can you hear me? 
me. Oh, there we go. So we can hear you. Okay, perfect. Okay, so hi everyone. Sorry my plans changed and I'm no longer able to be there in person. Um, perfect. So I don't know, are we able to pull up the slides? I'm only seeing me, so I don't know if the slides are up or not. Not yet. Um, give it just okay. a sec, Dr. Moser. Perfect. Just let me know. Um, yeah, so while they're being pulled up, so I think, you know, these the next two talks are going to be pretty casual. Both um, Dr. McKean and myself are going to kind of tag team everything. Um, so it's going to be more of a group discussion. So if there's any questions for me or Dr. McKean, just let us know. Um, and so th that would be great. Okay, it looks like the slides are up. So, you know, we're going to start today by talking about how to navigate a diagnosis of metastatic melanoma. So we can go to the next slide. Great. So, you know, anytime you get a diagnosis of metastatic cancer, it, it's hard. And there's a lot of information and there's a lot of information online and people will give you lots of information. Um, so I just wanted to start with some general comments about, you know, what are the things to think about when you know, you're diagnosed or there's a concern you may have metastatic melanoma. The first thing is use the patient advocacy groups. You know, the information that a cure insight has that they put together. Um, the Melanoma Research Foundation also has some um, information about melanoma. A lot of this information is patient facing and they're really, they're really good resources. I know a cure insight has a weekly Zoom call um, where you can log in from anywhere in the United States patients or friends of patients or family members and kind of jump on a call and talk about, you know, questions, concerns with people. And really a lot of my patients have found this information and this interaction really, really beneficial. So number one thing is use the patient advocacy groups. You know it's good information and they're just a really supportive uh, group of people. The other thing that you want to do is find or coordinate your care with a medical oncologist who has some expertise in melanoma. So, you know, there's every, medical oncology has really blown up over the years. It used to be an oncologist could know everything. Um, now it's when you're an oncologist and you see all tumor types, we're learning so much and getting so much information, which is great for cancer care. It means it's really hard to keep up on stuff, especially for rare tumors like melanoma. And so really make sure you get your care with someone who knows you melanoma or have someone involved in your care. And that could be a melanoma specialist who doesn't necessarily say they're a melanoma specialist, but they see enough melanomas and melanomas to understand. Or that could be going around <clears throat> to a melanoma center and just having them work closely with your local oncologist just to kind of help guide the care. The... Next point I want to make is third and second opinions are okay. And I think we see a lot of patients go around and get different opinions, but beware of the fact that you're probably going to get different opinions. So one of the things with melanoma is that it's so rare, we don't have as much definitive answers as we do for other tumors. It is not, this is the absolute best treatment for this setting. And this one we know is less effective. A lot of times it's, well, this is what we think is the best because we don't have a lot of data directly comparing um, each other. So 
if you want to go get more information, do it. More minds are better. But if you're someone who is hoping to get one answer from three different people to make you feel better, realize that may not happen. And that's just because we don't actually have all of that data to know what is the best number one thing, number two thing. And so just, just you know, I'm glad we have the clinical psychologist here because this can be really traumatizing for patients. And so that's just something I want to put on people's radar. The other thing I always tell people is <clears throat> if, you know, your provider's concerned you have metastatic melanoma, the way we always confirm cancer is by doing a biopsy. And I always tell people, send genomic testing from the biopsy from diagnosis. So there's two ways of doing genetic tests. You can test the tumor, which is seeing what DNA or other molecular changes are in the tumor, or you can test the person to say, what are your genetics? And for you for melanoma now, we need to do both. So always, so whenever we have cancers that have limited treatment options, we always like to send genomic testing on the tumor because it may give us different ways to treat patients. And I tell people, this is kind of a fishing expedition. Sometimes we find things that changes the management. Sometimes we don't, but really we don't know until we look. And so I always tell people, go ahead, send the genomic testing on the first biopsy. That way we get as much information early on to really help clarify um, you know, the treatment plan and how we can move forward. The other thing we need to do besides testing the tumor is testing you as the person. And that's, you know, testing for germline HLA testing. So germline means we're testing you and not the cancer. And this is important for one of the treatment options that I'll talk a little bit about. And Dr. McKean will talk a little more about next hour, um, Kimtrak or Tabendafust. You know, this is an immune therapy that's specifically designed to only work with one HLA type. And so we need to know if the patient has that HLA type, because if they don't, there's no point in treating with the drug because it's designed not necessarily to work. And, um, you know, we, we get a lot of questions about what is my HLA type? And what I like to tell people is this is basically a fancy blood type. So ABO, the same blood types we have that help guide what type of blood we can give you. This is basically the blood type for organs. So when we do organ transplants and say, can we give someone this kidney? We have to match the HLA blood type, just like we do the ABO for blood. So really it's just a blood type for your organs. Next slide. <clears throat> so when someone gets metastatic melanoma, you know, as we all are well aware, greater than 90% of the time, the cancer shows up in the liver. And for most patients, <clears throat> this may be the initial only site of disease, or it could be the site of the greatest burden. And so this is why after plaque therapy or removing the eye, we tend to follow patients with imaging that gets really good look at the liver. And that's typically MRI. PET scan gets a pretty good look too, but both MRI and PET scan tend to give us better images of the liver than just a CT alone. When, when we see someone in clinic that just has disease in one area, such as the liver, we always ask ourselves, could we try a local therapy? So something that we give to part of the body rather than all over the body and see if that can help. And for melanoma, those local therapies are typically liver-directed therapies. And for some patients, these are very reasonable options. Next slide. 
So this is one of the areas that we don't have a lot of information. So there really have never been great studies comparing liver-directed therapies to systemic therapies in uveal melanoma, especially with the newer systemic therapies that are commonly used for uveal melanoma or approved. There was a meta-analysis that was performed that suggested maybe focusing treatments on the liver does improve uh, survival and benefit, but it's, it's unknown if that's just by patient selection, because obviously patients who only have liver or disease in one spot may do better inherently than people who have disease in six or seven slots. Um, and then, like I said, th this study was done far beyond or far before we had these new immune therapies like Optivo and Yervor, which is commonly used for melanoma, or Kimtrak, which um, is now approved for people with the right HLA type. And so we still use liver-directed therapies a lot, but this is really one of those areas, I think, and, you know, we can get Dr. McKean's thoughts um, in the discussion after we finish up our short slide set on this, where we don't really know what is better, liver-directed therapy or systemic therapy. And then if we do liver-directed therapy, what is the best liver-directed therapy? We don't have a lot of data give, comparing these things head-to-head. -head. Next slide. So what are the types of liver-directed therapies? So there's kind of um, <clears throat> two things I like to think about. There's transarterial embolization where interventional radiology goes in and basically blocks the arteries that go to the liver. The liver is very unique in the fact that the normal liver itself actually gets its blood from the portal vein, but cancers within the liver get its blood from the hepatic artery. So you can actually go in there, go into someone's body, cut off the hepatic arteries and really not have much damage to the liver itself, only cancers growing in there. And that's really the basis for these um, arterial embolizations. So there's a lot of different embolizations that you can do. And really it comes down to what do you put in the artery before you block it? So we have chemoembolization where they can give chemotherapy into the artery, thinking that the chemotherapy will get directly to the tumor and then you block the artery so there's no more blood flow. You can drop in radioactive beads, and this is the typical yttrium or Y90 or radioembolization before you block the artery and prevent more blood flow. And then you can do um, immunoembolization where we give different cytokines through the artery, thinking they get directly to the tumor and then cut off the blood supply. Again, none of these have ever been compared head-to-head -head in a randomized trial, so we don't actually know which ones are best. There may be different reasons based on side effect profiles or how fast we think they work that we would recommend one or the other, but otherwise, we don't have good information to say this is the clear best option, this one's the clear worst option. I think an exciting um, type of liver-directed therapy that's going to be coming out or that is out a little bit and hopefully is more accessible soon is percutaneous hepatic artery perfusion, or sorry, percutaneous hepatic perfusion. This is um, based on a clinical trial that's been published and is currently being offered as an expanded access, as an early access, which means they're allowing patients to get this before FDA approval. And this is currently only being offered at Moffitt Cancer Center and Duke Cancer Center. I think I have a picture of this on the next slide. Perfect. So what this is, is 
it's similar to the embolization where we need an interventional radiologist. And what they do is they go into the arteries and instead of going to the, I'm sorry, they go into the blood vessels. And instead of going to the arteries that feed the liver, they actually go into um, the IVC and put a machine in there that blocks the circulation from the liver. So basically we isolate the liver and put it on bypass, similar to what you would do if you had a heart transplant or a major cardiac surgery. And so they basically turn your body into two different circulations. One, the your body, which circulates blood everywhere except the liver, and then circulation of just the liver and the extra, the, the machine outside, which oxygenates it. They then circulate high doses of chemotherapy through the liver. So chemotherapy gets high doses everywhere in the liver, and then, but not the rest of the body. They then um, stop the infusion, reconnect the um, circulation to the liver back to that of everywhere else in the body, and then it's done. You know, they've shown really exciting results with this. I think they've reported um, response rates in liver anywhere from 30 to 50%. Um, we're still waiting for the data to mature, but I think, and again, we'll get Dr. McKean's version on this. I think based on the data I've seen, although it's never been compared head to head, I get the sense this might be one of the more effective liver-directed therapies that are out there. But again, there's no data to definitively say that. That's just based on comparing what's published with something else because they haven't been compared head to head. So we talked a little bit about the liver-directed therapies that we could do. Um, you know, I didn't mention radiation. Radiation is always an option. If there's just one or two spots, we can always do spot treatment with radiation. Um, most of the time, there's more than one or two slots, which is why, or more than one or two spots in the liver that need treatment, which is why we do the, um, the liver-directed therapies. But if there is a patient that just has one or two, maybe medium-sized spots that are kind of growing more than um, the others, we very easily can do just spot treatment with radiation too. That's a reasonable local therapy. So what about the systemic therapies? So there's a couple of things that are commonly used um, for the treatment of metastatic ebro melanoma. The first one is tibendafus. So this is Kimtrak, the only FDA approved treatment for metastatic ebro melanoma. Again, it's only for patients with HLA-AO201. And this is that blood type for organ transplants. The big thing with tibendafus is you know, it's you have to have that HLA type, and it's debated about how commonly patients actually have that. So, for Caucasians, it's reported to be around thirty to fifty percent of patients. For non-Caucasians, it's actually much less. We rarely see this HLA type in non-Caucasian patients, and so unfortunately, although this is a great option, it's not an option for the majority of patients right now. Tibendafus, we know, based on the randomized trials, extends survival by six months compared to pembrolizumab alone and has a 10% chance of shrinking the tumors. Now, there's definitely benefit to this drug, even if the tumors don't shrink, which is why we see the extended survival. And I believe Dr. McKean will talk more about that in her talk. We commonly use nivolumab and ipilimumab for metastatic uveal melanoma. The the 
degree of benefit for this drug is not quite as well known. This is there's been two randomized or two single armed trials of this drug of this combination and one retrospective, both which suggest that there's probably an 11 to 17 percent response rate. However, it very well could be that if we did a large randomized trial like we did with Tabendafus, we would see very similar response rates to Tabendafus. So I think a lot of us think that these are probably fairly equivalent um, in terms of their efficacy or their effectiveness. But again, they've never been compared head to head, so we don't know. And that would be a great discussion point to get Dr. McKean's thoughts, you know, after the next couple slides. Pembrolizumab can also be given alone and has a 5% response rate. We know that from the trial with Tabendafus. Um, and those are really the commonly used systemic treatments for uvular melanoma outside of clinical trials. Okay, so that concludes my short slide set. Um, so now we are gonna open the floor to discussion and questions um, and then go from there. Thank you, Dr. Moser. Um, so Dr. McKean, Dr. Sanger, we're so glad you guys are here with us. Um, Dr. McKean, do you have anything you wanna add to what Dr. Moser presented or do you wanna just go straight to discussion? Can you hear me? Yeah. No, great. I think, I think Dr. Moser made a really great point at the beginning of this is that there isn't one right treatment option. And so I think that can be something that's really challenging for patients to deal with. And I think Dr. Sanger can maybe um, comment on in her experience um, with, with patients with cancer. Um, but I think this was a, a great um, high-level overview and are ready to um, kind of jump into a discussion. That's what we're hoping with our sessions today is um, to really just, um, you know, this is just the foundation to, to discussing all these treatments. Okay, awesome. So just as kind of housekeeping, as you guys talk, and if you guys want to share discussion, um, will you guys just make sure to pass the mic and just take a pause? Oh, you have a mic. Wonderful. I didn't see that you had a third. Great. Okay. Um, well, we are, obviously, all of us are here. We want to understand more. Um, and I think that we are going to have, just as you guys look around, you guys have question cards on your tables. Um, I think that just as you guys can write questions, just let us know. And Lauren in the room is going to be running around the tables and she will pick up those question cards. Um, are you guys wanting to go ahead and just start taking questions from the audience or do you want to talk amongst yourselves? Well, maybe um, maybe we can actually start with Dr. Sanger yeah, um, while we're, we're gathering questions. Um, I think Justin had um, started this discussion, but I think also with our, our conversations with a lot of patients, just um, from the time of initial diagnosis, the uncertainty of, uh, you know, we have pretty good uh, uh, molecular markers and things like that to be able to better understand patients' risks, risk for metastasis. But Dr. Sanger, if you can just kind of take us through, um, you know, what, what's your advice to patients at time of diagnosis um, for patients that are in surveillance or um, even for patients at time of metastatic disease? You know, how, how do you um, help patients process that? It's a loaded question, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no easy answer to that, as you all know. Um, but getting a diagnosis of, of melanoma, going through the process, one of the probably most challenging things a person can experience. And, uh, and many people I talk to describe it kind of from an emotional standpoint as an emotional roller coaster. So there's the initial kind of spike in anxiety and fear and, uh, and perhaps sadness. 
Uh, when you first find out about that diagnosis, there's a lot of anxiety between when you find out and when treatment starts, when you have decided on a plan. Uh, then sometimes there's a period of adjustment uh, as people go through their treatment. And then predictable spikes in, in fear, anxiety, uh, when it's time for scans or when treatment uh, uh, stops being as effective as it once was, or when metastases develop. Um, so I think that's that sense of emotional roller coaster describes really well the experience of many people uh, when they're dealing uh, with, with melanoma. Um, I think two of the biggest challenges um, for, for folks dealing with cancer, and, and with this cancer in particular, since... Um, with uveal melanoma, as Dr. Moser, I think, um, described well, there is, there, it's rare, there isn't a lot of data, there is a lot of uncertainty. And uncertainty is one of the biggest uh, uh, challenges of, of dealing with this cancer. Um, uncertainty about uh, how the body's gonna respond to treatment, what the course of treatment is going to look like, um, how to, it's hard to plan, right, one's life when you're living with so much uncertainty. And the second, I think, a significant uh, kind of psychological effect is the feeling of, of lack of control. Um, so when you're, there's a much about dealing with cancer and going through treatment that's out of one's control. Um, and that creates a lot of distress. Um, so part of what uh, I talk to people about as they go through cancer treatment is ways to manage uncertainty and ways to try and take control of the things that one can. Um, and uh, so I'd be, you know, we can talk more about that if you all have questions or if I... Yeah, I think that would be a really good thing to kind of go into a little more if you guys are okay with that. Yeah. Um, because like you said, one of the most challenging things is when you get a metastatic diagnosis, it, you're thrust straight back into the initial trauma that you experienced the first time you were diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And so that you've got kind of the resurfacing trauma, and then you've got everything else you're dealing with that's so unknown. There is no right answer. And like you said, you're dealing with so much uncertainty. And when we have uncertainty, we want answers. We like, buy, like our, our brains need it and want it, and we don't know how to like function without it. So I guess what would you say maybe would be some, some, some tools people could use in that case where they don't have a specific answer, their doctor's saying, well, like, like Dr. Moser said, maybe they get three opinions and they have three different options of, well, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. How do you help them navigate that level of uncertainty with the, the, um, the kind of idea of, well, how do I make the right decision? And, and all of those pieces, um, I guess what would be some strategies for that? Yeah, again, um, it's, uh, there's no easy answers to that. I think uh, in terms of treatment, it's, uh, uh, part of it maybe is reminding oneself that there's not a, a right answer or a wrong answer. I think so often we get um, caught up in kind of what's the right thing to do or what's the one thing that's going to be the best. Um, and, uh, and oftentimes that's not clear. And so um, it's not right or wrong, it's... Uh, um, it, or good or bad, um, it's talking to um, the, um, your healthcare providers, your specialists, your oncologists, gathering the information that, that you can and then making the best decision that you can, knowing that none of us has the crystal ball. Um, and, uh, uh, and so um, making the decision, committing to that, and, uh, and trying not to, to look back. Um, it's easy when six months or 12 months down the road to look back and say, maybe I should have done something different. Um, 
but, uh, but you make the best decision. That's what we all do. We gather information. We talk to the people that we can. We put our trust in our medical providers and make the best decision we can with the information we have. Um, and and that's, that's all any of us can do. Um, there are, again, there are many aspects of dealing with this situation that's out of, out of one's control. And, but there are almost always things that you do have control over. And so trying to shift your, your energy, your focus to those things is part of what helps with coping. So um, you have control, some control over how you take care of your body as you go through treatment, nourishing your body well, getting adequate rest, doing, getting some physical activity, um, um, doing things that are relaxing or calming to kind of counter that anxiety that often shows up. Those are things that, that a person can do um, to, to take control of the things that they have control over. Um, I think uh, um, being um, mindful of one's emotions. So there's, going through cancer evokes a whole lot of emotions, um, worry, fear, anger, uh, guilt, frustration, sadness, grief. Um, it's a lot of swirling emotions to, to deal with. And uh, as humans, I think we're often inclined to try and um, not want to feel those, those difficult emotions, to, to uh, buck up. How many times do you hear from people, oh, keep a, you know, keep a positive attitude, and uh, people want to see you, you know, fight and, and be strong. Um, uh, and as if to say, you know, don't, don't pay attention to those difficult emotions that are there. Um, but in reality, those difficult emotions are valid, they're significant, they're our body's way of telling us that we're going through something important and, and, it's, and it's helpful to listen to those feelings and acknowledge them, name them. Um, there's an expression in the psychology world which is name it to tame it. Um, so when we acknowledge our emotions, when we name it, God, I'm feeling really sad right now, I'm feeling really scared. Um, that helps to, to soften that emotion a bit. And, uh, and when we acknowledge our emotions, when we express them in some way, whether it's through talking about it, whether it's through um, uh, writing about it, whether it's through um, other, you know, um, crying when we need to cry, there's benefit in acknowledging our emotions and, and releasing them um, rather than trying to, you know, um, kind of power through and pretend that those things aren't there. Um, I, think, uh, I think one goal as a person goes through this is to, uh, is to accept the diagnosis and to accept that they're going through something really difficult. Um, and sometimes I hear people say, well, acceptance means I'm giving up. And that's not what acceptance means. Acceptance means you're saying, this is what I'm dealing with, so this is what I have to, have to focus on, um, versus trying to, um, try, having that struggle with, oh, I wish it wasn't this way, I wish I could go back to before this diagnosis, I, I don't want to be dealing with this. That's, that's a lot of energy into, um, towards something that, um, that you can't change. And so acceptance is, okay, this is what I'm dealing with, so let's figure out how I can help myself physically, mentally, emotionally, um, as, I, as I walk this road. Um, um, I don't know, those are some, I guess, some initial uh, thought strategies, uh, things to think about. Um, again, happy to 
um, to talk further and answer pe people's questions that they may have about those things. I guess just kind of to follow up yeah. with what you were saying towards mm -hmm. the end, um, how you mentioned like putting energy towards the things that you can't control versus the things you can. Um, one of the things that I guess I'm, I'm curious to know is like, do you, do you find it helpful for, for patients um, to focus on like the present? Because I think the tendency for most of us is to jump to the what ifs. Mm -hmm. And those what ifs are very far in advance. I think that, I think everyone's brain is different, but I know my brain and many other of your brains jump straight to, okay, I want, I want all these answers and what if this doesn't work? And what if that doesn't work? And what if this doesn't work? And you wanna know, well, is there a plan for all of these potential scenarios that haven't happened yet? Mm -hmm. um, so would you, I guess, would you say that like trying to stay focused on what's here in front of you instead of, way down the line that hasn't even occurred yet is, is helpful for most patients? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up. That's, that's, a, that's an important point. Um, yeah, so, so your mind works like my mind. works like most of our minds. We are, our minds are kind of um, tend to focus on the negative, the, the bad things that could happen, uh, the what ifs. Um, right? How many times we say, oh, what if this really good thing happens? <laughs> that's not what we usually what if about. It's what if these, this bad thing or scary thing happens. Um, so that's the way our minds are wired, because our minds are designed to keep us safe. Um, and so they're looking out for the threats, the, the, the danger. Um, and uh, so we kind of have to work at, at uh, reining that in sometimes. Um, the what if can be useful at times if it leads to some problem solving. So like, what if this happens? Well, is there something I can do about that? Is there something that I can help myself with now about that? If so, great, um, do that. That's a way of taking control. But if the what ifs are, you know, if you gotta get hooked on what those what ifs, it's, if they just kind of um, are on repeat in your, in your head and, you're, and it doesn't really lead to any productive things that you can do about them, uh, then yes, shifting to the present, I think, is a, is a really helpful strategy. It's, it's what I call shifting from the what if to the what is. So what is it that I'm dealing with today? What is it that I know now? What is it that I can do something about today? Um, and, uh, and so if you find your mind um, being uh, hijacked sometimes yes. by those what ifs, um, to, to try and bring it back to the what is. What, what is it that I can do today? And, and also, you know, when we're looking behind us at the past or looking forward to the future, um, we kind of miss out sometimes on the, the good things that happen in the present. Um, and, uh, and immersing ourselves in the present, what's going on today, um, how can I make the best of this day, um, is, uh, is a useful way of coping. Wonderful. I have one final question for Dr. Mm -hmm. Sanger that I think is very pertinent to this discussion, and then I, I kind of want to move on to some of our questions, if that's okay. Um, so this one, this one just asks, are there any resources for families coping with emotional and mental stress, caregiver role support? Um, so within your guys' practice, do you guys offer that to the patient family support? Um, and I guess, how would you suggest that patients find that in other avenues? Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh... Yes, we are fortunate at Tennessee Oncology where we, we do have a psychology team that offers counseling to individuals with cancer as well as to, to family members. So absolutely caregivers or you know, partners, spouses, uh, friends, family of, of those who are going through cancer um, experience their own um, emotional responses and stress um, and, uh, and are deserving of, of support and counseling as well. Um, so I would, uh, so um, uh, finding a counselor, 
uh, can be really useful. Um, there are at, in cancer centers, uh, many do have um, counselors specializing in, in uh, working with, uh, dealing with the emotional impact of cancer. Um, uh, and uh, here in Nashville, we also have a resource called Gilda's Club. For those of you who are perhaps from larger cities, you might have a Gilda's Club in your area. There's many of them across the country. Um, they're also known as um, uh, cancer support communities, but uh, they offer a lot of support groups for people who are going through cancer, support groups not only for individuals with cancer, but often for um, family members as well. Um, and that can be a really um, useful resource. There's there's a special kind of wisdom and support that comes from being with people who are going through what you're going through. Um, and so support groups can be um, very helpful. There's um, support groups online um, as well. So for those of you uh, um, who are on Facebook or who can access um, uh, uh, information over in, um, activities over the internet, um, there are a lot of online support groups for um, individuals who are going through cancer. So that can be another good resource. Thank you. I think that's, I mean, that's just very good pertinent information and to recognize, you know, again, to that control factor that we have ways to find this um, if we link up with the right resources. Uh, so I have a few kind of more medical questions for Dr. Moser and Dr. McKean, if that's okay if we move on to that. Um, one, of the, one of the questions is pertaining specifically to the percutaneous treatment that Dr. Moser presented on. And it just says, does the catheter remain for the duration of treatment or is it reinserted each time? So kind of like a port, I think, for immunotherapy where they leave it. Um, so Dr. McKean, Dr. Moser, do either of you want to weigh in on that? Dr. Moser there. I believe it's yeah. um, with each treatment, it's, in, it's placed and then, then removed. I believe that as well. And I think it's just one or two treatments total, if I recall correctly. Okay, so I think that covers that one. And just keep in mind, guys, we have a lot of questions. Some of them are a little bit more relevant to Kimtrak. So if they are, and I don't get those answered in this session, we will hold those for next session. Just keep in mind, anything relevant to Kimtrak, we will discuss more in, in depth next, uh, next session. Um, just what is your what is your opinion on resection? As is that that's not something that was ever really talked about in these options. That is something that is sometimes explored, just because of the way that, like you said, medical oncology works. That tends to be a way of treating. So, Dr. McKean, um, what's your opinion on that? And then we can go to Dr. Moser. Yeah, I I rarely recommend this, and and that's generally because the metastatic disease when it develops in the liver. Um, it's very different than other cancers where patients may, you know, a patient with um, colon cancer that is spread to the liver, they generally have kind of um, individual, you know, larger tumors. Um, but for uveal melanoma, it tends to be um, many smaller tumors. And that's why we watch with MRI um, because we're watching for, you know, just the smallest changes in the liver. And so the challenge can be is that oftentimes if a patient does go in for resection, um, when they go in, they actually see other smaller tumors. And so you're putting patients through a large procedure and may still be leaving active disease there. And so it's a, it's a good question. We get it often. Um, it's, it's a unique or you know, specific patient that I would usually recommend it if they have kind of one larger tumor, scans have otherwise um, looked negative. Maybe it's an opportunity if you've had some disease control with the medication and there's just one persistent tumor. Um, but oftentimes we can also pursue these with liver-directed treatments that might be easier to recover from. Okay, thank you. I felt like that was helpful. Um, 
So this is, sorry, this is a question uh, a little bit more about navigating clinical trials. And um, so we don't really need to go into major depth on this, but I guess if you guys as, as physicians want to kind of explain a little bit of the background of the process of how you walk a patient through selecting some of those like best course actions. Um, and I think that you're going to kind of touch on this, but I think that we got to just keep in mind we're having a generalized discussion, and this is all very unique discussions that happen with someone's doctor. Um, so they're, they're going to give a general answer, but the answer is very different and unique for each patient. And um, I'll jump in. We're actually going to discuss clinical trials at, at length the next session because okay. we know it's such a, a big topic. All right. Well, then stay want, tuned and hang out, and we will hold this question for later. All right. Um, so let's just see if, if you guys can give a brief background on what's the, the expected life expectancy. The expected life, um, what is your life expectancy without treatment? And is there treatment, uh, is there treatment available if, if it like grows very fast? Or no, if it goes to the lung first. Sorry, I can't read handwriting. <laughs> um, so I guess what is, what is the life expectancy stats that we know? Do you guys know those off the top of your head? Or can you point us to that resource? And, um, and then we can cover the other question. Dr. Mosier wants to start with that one. Yeah, I think, you know, historically we've said that once uber melanoma comes back and spreads, the survival is just about a year, just not a little bit over. Now with all the screening and stuff we're doing, we're catching people earlier. And so that's probably longer now. I think on the ChemTrack study, um, survival was about a year and a half for the control arm and just about two years for the uh, track arm. So now I think most of us are saying one and a half to two years on average, but I definitely have patients who beat that by many folds and we definitely have patients who unfortunately don't make that, you know, so it's really just based on, you know, how fast your tumor is growing and, you know, the specific information about the patient. Going to the question about what if it comes to the lung first, you know, I've never been able to find great data on it. So I'd love to get Dr. McKean's uh, experience. But my experience is that if it's not in the liver, patients tend to do better. They tend to live longer and their disease tends to be more indolent. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, you know, I think the location, so doesn't specifically tie to you know, I've had some patients with lung metastases that they've been more indolent um, and others um, that it has been more aggressive. Um, I'll, I'll go back to the, the question about um, life expectancy. I think Dr. Moser's point about surveillance and catching it early, what um, I like to encourage patients to do is, you know, our hope is that if we would um, find this disease, find it early when it, you know, ho hopefully is kind of a lower volume, less disease, and that gives us the most, you know, the most time to pursue different um, treatment options, whether that's liver-directed, TEBI, if it's an option, clinical trials. Um, and, you know, we're all hopeful we're going to change uh, the historical um, survival expectations. Okay. Um, so why is it... Um, why is it that you guys have the systemic data that we saw? We saw liver-directed therapies and some of the data for that, and then we saw the data for the systemic treatments. So why is it that the liver-directed therapies, um, I guess, have better outcomes in some, in some ways than the systemic ones? Because we see the response rate, and I guess I'm just kind of curious, can we clarify some of that data of, like, if it says a 9% response rate, is that, what does that mean? What does a response rate mean, really, in, in this world? Yeah, I can start with what does response rate mean? So response rate for clinical trials um, is, is generally standardized across all tumors. 
And so it's not, it's based on a percentage change of the tumors that you see um, at the start of treatment. And now if you go back to our discussions about how challenging it can be to see and track uveal melanoma, um, we'll, we'll discuss on some of the TEBI data that we're not sure if response rate is the most helpful way to follow um, uveal melanoma progress um, because, you know, you definitely need an MRI, um, but it can be tricky to really capture how much benefit you're getting in some of these smaller tumors because um, just because you aren't having significant shrinkage of those tumors, if we're keeping things stable without growing, and I like to encourage patients, like that's still a good outcome with the medication um, because, you know, for the most part, patients um, with uveal melanoma, if you're, if you're diagnosed with metastatic disease on surveillance, you feel good, right? You may not have symptoms from your cancer at that time. So even if we can keep your disease from growing, that can still be beneficial. And so that's where the response rate can be challenging. And we'll discuss um, in the next session with Tebby that even though we see a low, a low response rate, and we'd like for that to be higher, we still saw that that medication was helping patients live longer, which is ultimately what we want um, and, and shoot for. Okay, I think that's a really good important point to make because I think that can be scary, right? To look at the response rate and see it's so low and to wonder like, well, does it even work? So let's, let's definitely talk more about that later. Um, I think for this final question before we close out this session, um, this one I think is just in general good for understanding and I think it would be good to have some clarification here because I think that this can be, and I've, I've discussed this with Dr. Moser, but this can be one of those areas that, that you guys see patients and um, they tend to... Can, it can go either way and it can be a little unknown. So this is two questions that talk about, okay, are there alternative therapies that you guys discuss with patients? Um, and how do you navigate that with a patient who is wanting to pursue you know, Eastern medicine, alternative therapies? Um, how do you keep the lines of communication open? And Dr. Moser, if it's okay with you, can I pose this to you since we just talked about this um, in our recent discussion earlier this week? Um, yeah, absolutely. That. So, you know, I think, so it's a, I think there's kind of two answers I give depending on the situation. So if a patient's going on a standard treatment like, you know, nivolumab and ipilimumab or Tebi, then I tend to tell them, you know, do whatever you want alongside it. Just let us know. You know, most of these alternative medicines, we don't have perfect information on side effects. And so 90% of the time I'll say, well, we don't know if it's going to interact. So just let us know if anything happens. But there are certain instances where we do know that things interact. So we just need to make sure in case, make sure we know what you're on. That way we can make sure there isn't a known side effect. The thing I always tell people about that, though, is my clinic, just like Dr. McKean's clinic, just like everyone else's clinic, we have insurance teams that get authorization because we never want you to lose your house or become bankrupt from the treatments we're giving. So just make sure if you're seeing an alternative medicine doctor, they're doing that as well or being cost conscious. There's really nothing more heartbreaking than seeing a patient who goes to another country to try to mint on alternative medicine and comes back and is now broke and no longer has a house, right? That's just heartbreaking and we don't want that for our patients. If patients are on clinical trials, because of the safety and regulation of the clinical trials, there's a lot more rules about what you can be on. And so depending on the clinical trial, they may restrict any alternative therapies. Some may be okay. Um, but on clinical trial, it gets, becomes more of an issue just because we have to make sure that it's in the protocol in terms of what can or cannot be done. But in general, 
you know, I, I'm supportive of alternative therapies as long as it's not a known, as long as there's not a known toxicity or side effect, and that includes significant financial toxicity. He, Dr. McKean, do you want to weigh in on that at all, or did you feel like that covered it? Yeah, no, I, I think um, I think that pretty much covers it. I think one thing I'll discuss with patients is that if you are going to try some alternative therapies, to keep in mind that you know the, the we keep coming back to the liver, right? Keeping the liver healthy, happy is the most important thing, but the liver is where a lot of drugs are metabolized, and so we just have to make sure that um, these. Uh, these medications aren't affecting the liver um, and causing any um, inflammation, whether that's short or long-term. And so I think just having that open conversation with your doctor so we can, we can know, we can um, be able to, you know, check your labs and, and watch carefully is really important. Yeah, I think that's probably the most important thing, right, is just keep the line of communication open. Um, so, okay, I feel like that covers what we need to in this session, unless you guys have anything you want to wrap up with. But uh, Dr. Moser, Dr. McKean, Dr. Singer, thank you so much. This discussion was wonderful. And just like I said, keep in mind, I did get a lot of questions. Some of them I sorted, and they are more pertinent to the castle testing discussion we're going to have later today. Some of them are very ChemTrack focused. We'll discuss those later. So just keep in mind, if I didn't get to your question, um, I'm not ignoring you. We just had a lot of questions, and we've got to kind of sort through and make sure they're appropriately sorted. So we're going to excuse you guys for a break, and we're going to have Dr. McKean back again uh, with Dr. Moser to present further on KimTac. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, Leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.